you really have to meet people where they are. That was a lesson I came to appreciate later. It's, you know, just trying to find that spark in your community of like-minded people, finding out which areas they're going to feel proud they, they made an impact in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Live Well. If you're even the slightest bit curious about building a social movement or community building, look no further. Today on Live Well, Olivia Farr, who is an innovator and an environmental change maker, shares how she ignited a social movement in her own backyard that started with her meeting people where they are and creating a win-win-win for all that is translated across the state of New York and beyond. Let's hear the full story from Olivia. Enjoy. Olivia has spent her career launching and supporting a broad range of nonprofits. Most recently, she's co-founded the Bedford 2030 Coalition, a climate action plan program in Bedford, New York. And this is what we will be talking about for most of this podcast. With an undergrad degree from UPenn, a master's in business from Pace University, and a master's in public administration from New York University, and decades of advising and leading health equity promoting programs like Healthy Babies, Bright Futures, and the John Merck Fund. Olivia is a true force for good and a believer in the power of movement building. Today, we'll hear from Olivia about the what, how, and why she's building a seemingly unstoppable movement called the Bedford 2030 Initiative. So thank you, Olivia, for joining us to share your invaluable wisdoms. Thank you for having me, Wendy. I'm delighted. And that all sounds so amazing. I could hardly believe (laughs) I did all those things, but thank you. Nice sometimes to hear it and reflect, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, well-earned and well-deserved. To set the stage, let's just think about the town of Bedford, which actually is a series of hamlets, as I mm-hmm. understand, right? What does that mean, first of all, a series of hamlets? Hamlets are small communities, each uh, sort of governed by the town, um, which has its own administration, Each hamlet has its own elementary school, and then they gather under the town of Bedford Central School District. But the town of Bedford essentially sets the policy for all of them, the the far-reaching policies. That's very helpful. So the town of Bedford was the first community to develop a climate action plan in Westchester. Let's start there. What were you seeing in your community that propelled you to start this program? I think a lot of us who cared about environmental issues saw that there wasn't a lot of local action. We felt very disengaged from the talk that was going on and the words that were used were global warming. And they were these huge terms that people got, you know, were starting to feel apprehensive. We certainly knew there was a problem if you read up on it, but there were no directives that went down to a community level to make people feel that they could actually make change on the topic. We also came into being on the heels of Obama's campaign, where his mantra was, yes, we can. And we said, well, we need to employ that locally. Yes, we can. So what we did was kind of create a retail trade show, if you will, for People interested in making progress on global warming, we were saying at the time. We've later learned through tons of messaging research um, done by lots of national groups that climate change was more 
you know, resonated more clearly with people. But back then, if you mentioned global warming, people's eyes would glaze over. Well, what, is, what does that actually mean? So we started with a trade show uh, expo and information session at the high school. And we were kind of blown away because we had to shut it down after a thousand people came through the door. And we segmented it into large lectures where national educators and scientists came and talked about the big issues of the day, what's happening to our oceans, how are we using farmland, what's, what's happening in our recycling efforts, and then drilled down into workshops where local people who had some authority could give our residents and attendees basically a laundry list of things they could actually do in their backyard or in their houses to make them feel like you have the power to make change on this issue. And if we could edu educate people that they understood what the problem is, but give them tools, we had the beginning of engagement. Wow. What a great roadmap for others to think about if they have a passion or a concern in their own community. I remember you receiving, speaking of Obama, one of his um, challenge grants from the Department of Energy in 2000. Right. And it was part of this effort or the was that the beginning of your effort? We applied for that grant after our environmental summit. It wasn't really a trade show. Formal name was environmental summit. So we applied for it after that. And it was matched by NYSERDA, which is the New York State energy and recovery. So we got, in effect, got a double grant for a pilot study. What we learned from our summit was the most impact you can have is if you start to retrofit your homes to make them more energy efficient. It has profound effect on your greenhouse gas emissions. So we started there and we were a pilot project that went out to prove if you can do energy efficiency of your residential housing stock, you will make some great strides toward reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And we took on 300 houses as part of the pilot over a three-year period. And that involved all sorts of campaigns in, in terms of public awareness and hiring uh, people to go to people's homes, working with contractors. And, and we did it. And that program rolled out statewide after that. Wow, that's like a prototype of what those challenge grants in 2009 were intended to do. Yeah, well, it was it was really hard, intensive work and a lot of education. But, you know, once people understood that they were actually wasting money by not upgrading either their furnaces or putting in better insulation in their walls, the light bulbs really went off and then you had neighbors talking to neighbors. Yeah, it's a win-win. It's a win yeah. because people, it motivates them because they save money. And then, of course, it's a win for Mother Nature. Exactly. It shows the power of local organizing. And I'd like to get back to this, you know, where you had a thousand people show up at the high school. You, you referred to it as the place where you learned this first step that you then took on in terms of getting it funded. Is mm -hmm. What were all the different ideas that came from that particular first organizing event? I believe we had someone from the federal, well, we certainly had someone from the state level. So a lot of what we've done, we've also been very careful to include government officials. 
our local town was very proactive and a partner of ours from the very beginning. So we were careful to both have contractors who could speak to, well, what happens when we come in to upgrade your home? What does that look like? And policymakers, I guess I would say that they were also there from neighboring towns. So they saw what we were doing and they went back to their own towns and said, look, you know, we have to, we can do this too. And that was a big recession, period of recession of 2009. And those challenge grants were not only addressing issues that were high on the agenda for the Obama administration, like global warming, but also were meant to employ people. You not only had a win for the environment, but you also, and a win for the individual who's saving money, but you also created jobs. And that's a really um, important, I think, trifecta for all of us to be aware of. It comes down to resources and not every community like ours has all the pieces in place. We're a well-resourced town in Northern Westchester, but most important, as I mentioned before, our local government was right, was our partner. They wanted to make change. We still like to think we have a bigger impact because we know some of our programs get exported. We just passed a local, it's called a new building health and performance law. About 30% of our building stock are apartments with a lot of low-income people usually. And they have inspections periodically as a normal course of business. What we've done is we've added a certain criteria that have to deal with energy efficiency and health to that checklist that weren't there before. And this is also a way of us trying to include more low-income people in our, our sort of menu of services who ordinarily, they're not going to be able to go, you know, put new insulation in the walls because they're beholden to the landlord. However, this will directly impact them because their fuel bills will go down if it's flagged that, oh, this, this building is ripe for more insulation. And if the landlord can't afford it, we're working in partnership with New York State to find them resources to do that. And it could have far-reaching impacts across the state. And then maybe across the country. I mean, what you're describing is really what I call an inclusive culture of health. These policy changes can be translated to a much broader community, ones that are often forgotten. Exactly. Well, so you say that these policymakers in your town were engaged from the get-go. Was it that they were voted in with this kind of philosophy or do you, how did you win them over for those that weren't necessarily? Well, with the original one, she actually came to us. She cared about her legacy. She cared about her grandchildren and, and wanted to do something that would impact their lives. It's just led to a recognition and, and frankly, community pride that our town is so involved. I mean, I think everyone in the community is very proud that we've made as much headway as we have. And we're of New York State municipalities. We're one of 10 climate smart communities to achieve silver status. And what does that entail, silver status? There's a rubric that you follow, you know, how do you, how you measure your carbon emissions and there's a formal process to it. And we've made some significant strides. So it's all based on carbon emissions. Yeah. 
and, and other things, you know, like what's your recycling rate? We just found out our town is recycling 76% of its waste. Now, that doesn't mean that all that gets recycled at the municipal recovery facility, but we are up to that rate, which means an incredible reduction in what we actually throw out now. Wow. That's really a sign of true engagement. That's for sure. Over the 50% mark is pretty tremendous. Measurement is key. You know, bringing back the conversation to that first policymaker that you referred to being concerned about her grandchildren. A phrase I heard recently from Dr. Alonzo Plow from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, a question he asked a group of us is, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Oh, I love that. And I think you and I are getting to that stage too. We started Uh like that, right? (laughs) Well, and it's also, I'm just reading this fabulous book by a 30-year-old from Oxford in the UK, and it's called Not the End of the World. And her name is Hannah Ritchie. And she says that we've got it all wrong. Stop this gloom and doom. Yes, we're probably not where we should be, but be positive about it. Be joyful about the victories you've made because if you don't make the action and the engagement positive and alluring, people can turn off so easily. Why should I try? Why should I do this? And I just, I was so blown away by what how she had framed it. She's absolutely right. You're really pointing to something that is why your example is such a great one of inspiration is that I think there's a lot of climate anxiety among youth and it's related to that sense, like there's nothing you can do about it. But what you're defining for your community is, yes, there is. It, it really gets to this question about the power of activating a community like what you did with the Bedford 23. 30, I think that we all should be thinking about how we could apply it to our own community. Tips would you offer people who might not have the capacity to, you know, get a big grant or whatever, but they can build their community around certain themes? Yeah. If someone is wants to, in effect, build the army, you really have to meet people where they are. That was a lesson I came to appreciate later. I heard it, didn't quite believe it. I thought everyone would think like I did. No, not true. Either they haven't had the necessary education in the topic and what was going on, or they simply weren't interested. So you really have to meet them where they are. And for some, it might be, well, I don't have an, a lot of time. I can't do too much. I can't afford you know, the most impactful actions, but I can compost. I can actually do that. And then once you get them hooked on an action that they feel good about and they have the resources to make it happen, you usually sort of like Hansel and Gretel. You can feed breadcrumbs to lead to the next act, you know, sort of column of activities where they can take another action. But it's it's being patient, it's education, and it's empowerment through toolkits, resources, or people to actually go help them. Like one of the more successful messengers for our energy efficiency programs were women, because once you've got them to look in their furnace room and not be afraid of it, like looking under the hood of a car and understood how it worked, and they felt that power and knowledge 
that they could communicate to their neighbor and then how much money they saved and what what, what actually went on. They were your best storytellers and, and enthusiastic champions. It's, you know, just trying to find that spark in your, you know, your community of like-minded people, you know, finding out which areas they're going to feel proud they, they made an impact in. I really like that recipe, really removing the mystery about something like the furnace. Yeah. Suddenly it becomes less scary or it also becomes something that you can actually maintain and make a difference with. Yeah. The other example you gave, which is the compost example, I just remember when we just when we started composting maybe two decades ago, was I marveled at how little garbage I had. Yeah. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that's like, that was great. I didn't have to take out the garbage every day or every other day. It was once a week that I actually took the garbage out between the composting and the paper items or the recycling that between the two of them, that was really demonstrated how much waste came from my everyday life. Exactly. For those people who can't do it in their yards by, you know, if it's prohibited in a certain district of town, if enough people are doing it and enjoy it, you know, again, it builds up the enthusiasm within the community. And the next step being you have, you know, municipal compost pickup. And we we do have a service. It's not quite townwide yet, but it was all on the backs of people who really enjoy doing it. So enough people start doing it to support that kind of policy. What's cool about what you've done and you're talking about these individual actions that can help engage somebody to participate in a bigger way, potentially over time, is that you've actually developed guides, right? Household guides, Mm -hmm. make a household or individual level change. And I'd love to know what are you the most proud of in that guide? Well, I had nothing to do with this, but again, an amazing inspirational community member launched something called the Recyclopedia. So if you have any question about what things in your household, what you can do with them, and it's A to Z, you just go there and it's now statewide. It's on the state site, which I think is really cool. And it's such a resource. That is fantastic. You're going to have to give us that website so that we can I will. all the listeners, because I think it's really phenomenal. So in your experience, which one of the sectors have you found to be the easiest or most efficient to change in your guide or in the work that you've done related to, I guess, electric supply, high-performance buildings, transportation, waste, sustainable food practices, water and land. There's so many pieces to it, right? I I think they're all challenging in their own way. So for example, energy was probably a very slow start, but we had more resources to put to the communications involved with energy. And then it definitely is the sector with the most impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Food is probably number one in terms of engagement. I was chair of a food forum for the community. And we had over 900 people come and we had chefs demonstrating how to cook with with just vegetables for for vegetarians, people eating less meat. We also launched an institutional food initiative of area hospitals so that they could buy more locally. But 
in terms of tracking the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, it's really hard. I mean, we we did a community-wide Meatless Monday campaign from that. And anecdotally, we can say, okay, we saved this amount because X households aren't eating meat on Mondays. But it's, you know, it's just not as exact as we'd like. And it's, we haven't continued to monitor that. So it, it just varies by sector. And again, it goes back to meet people where they are. And then, you know, if they're engaged by food, well, maybe then they start thinking about if they can recycle more. Yeah, I can understand if you don't have a regular measurement tool and it comes down to individual measurement, it's always difficult. In an institution, I suppose you could do it, probably the hospitals or something like that. Yeah, they were. it was great when they were all recording, but then the project ended. Another program we've launched, this Healthy Yard Initiative, there we can be pretty exact where we're getting homeowners to do an inventory of their yards, what kinds of trees, how many. And this is sort of a land use tool with those trees. Let's say they die or, or they somebody wants to take them down. We have a ex- pretty exact count of how much carbon is then either released or saved in the soil, depending on the activity. Because the plants or the grass, when it grows, captures the carbon, is that? Yeah, it stores carbon. And also, you know, just the most landscaping companies that people rely on haven't made the transition to electric motors. We're trying to help with that. But, you know, those small motors are some of the worst offenders in terms of carbon monoxide. The permaculture of grass lawns, most people put fertilizer on it. That's not especially healthy. And there are wonderful ways of creating habitat for butterflies and and other species by not mowing. Yes, you have to kind of watch it, but it's a win-win. One thing you've said before is that ideas that don't work are just as important as those that do work. Can you reflect on that and explain what you mean by that? Well, in some cases, there are populations we really hadn't considered. So we went whole hog into trying to get rid of plastic bags in the markets. And certainly the trend line was there to replace them. But there are a lot of people who depend on them and can't afford to buy a reusable bag. We, we got lucky because the state swept in maybe two years later and changed the law. We just thought, oh, everyone's going to jump on our bandwagon and, and see why this is so important. But it, that did not happen. You know, it was a good learning curve for us. Test the market first. Understand who all your populations are and what their motivations are before you go in, you know, thinking that everyone's going to share your vision. That reminds me of an L.A. Unified School District during the Obama time when the lunch school program shifted to a healthier kind of array of foods, but there was no run up for the families. And so there was a lot of pushback. I think that is a great lesson. You just can't change suddenly. So um, aside from the carbon neutrality being the end goal, what else do you hope to come out of this initiative that you're working towards? I hope that people go about their day thinking, positively about making change in in everyday steps um, because each particularly consumer movement sends a message into the supply chain and and that message is is literally like you're you know voting for environmental change or not 
you know, you, you have a lot to be proud of. And I'm, I certainly am so proud of the work you've done over these decades. And as you're reflecting on your career, what would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self that you're not going to figure out what you're going to do right away. Uh, It's a series of building blocks. It's based on your values, your education, where you came from, your parents. And that the real, to me, the real joy in life is finding like-minded community members and, and making a positive change for others. I know the actions I have taken with my friends and my colleagues will make a better world for my grandchildren. Are they the answer? No, but at least we tried. And I think that's just, it's a wonderful feeling. So gratifying. So if I were starting out, I'd I would encourage everyone to get involved in the community because the joy, the meaning that you you get from those experiences of collaboration and movement building are unlike anything I've experienced. Also providing a example to your children and grandchildren by doing what you're doing. So it's not only that you're giving them the gift of hopefully a better world in terms of our living environment, but also the the example, as we know, kids are much more likely to follow your example, not what you say, right? Right. <laughs> you, you know, you have done the same. You mentioned to me a while back that a lot of these skills were because you watched your father in community organizing. Tell me how that impacted you. My dad was a politician. He, he used to sell life insurance. And then they they were trying to pave the road we were on. I think that was the issue or there were potholes or something. Anyway, next step, he finds himself, he's an alderman in Massachusetts. And from there, realized he had a, a gift with people and he cared about public issues. So that became his job full time. And then he, he ran the minority uh, party in Massachusetts for many years and got involved, very involved sort of at the beginning of the energy crisis in the early 70s. And so I learned directly from him, be it him running down the hallway telling me to turn off the shower because I've been in there too long. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he really reoriented my thinking. And it was also a lot of campaigning where we were out meeting people at state fairs, parades. And I saw his joy in just getting to know all different kinds of people and understanding that we all share something. And when there's, there is a, a problem that needs to be addressed, all those different people coming together is one of the most powerful things to witness. It's really a great story about community organizing and being by the side of a of a great person like your dad and now look at you. Oh, thanks, Wendy. <laughs> really. Based on your experience, what advice would you give someone who would like to take steps like what you've done in building the Bedford 2030 Coalition? I would suggest you get educated. Again, if, uh, to use an example, if it's composting or food waste in general. Find out what your municipality is doing on the issue. If you see a gap in where where you think more can be done, start talking to people about it. You will find other like-minded people who notice the same thing. 
That's important. And, and you can go talk to your government. They work for you. So make an appointment. Find out what's, what's going on. And in a lot of cases, they'll say, hey, can you help me on this? Can you go out and organize for us? And then we'll help you. I really like that piece of advice. It's really a form of, you know, identifying need, but also identifying the assets in your community, whether they're the like-minded people or the policymakers or the shopkeepers, whoever it might be, and bringing them together with that common goal. So it's 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 doable. And I think this climate anxiety can be turned into climate action, right? That's sort Absolutely. of- Absolutely. Yes, we can. And be inclusive. And that, again, um, Dr. Alonzo Plow mentioned how climate change is a real multiplier in terms of increasing disparities. Different communities that are in more need are at a higher risk because of our climate changes. Absolutely. What we always like to do before we finish our interviews is to ask our guests, what does it mean for you to live well? For me to live well is to live with intention and to know that I've helped someone somewhere. Mm. That that to me is a full, rich life. And to have fun. <laughs> oh, yes. That's important. <laughs> and laugh. <laughs> and laugh. Exactly. This has been such a treat to uh, interview you on this subject. I know, I've known you for decades, but this interview really gave me insight and more detail about what you've been doing in Bedford. And I know there are other parts of your activism and community organizing that we'll have to talk about in the next podcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> thank you, Wendy. It's been a sheer pleasure. And thank you for having the podcast. It just shows you another example of how Wendy Slusser is one of the most inspiring individuals on the planet. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave with that. That made my. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. What an honor it is to host Olivia on Live Well. I'm so motivated by her spirit and humility, and most of all, her conviction that social change can happen when you listen to your neighbors, meet them where they are, and believe yes, you can. We will talk to you soon. Have a great day. We are so glad you joined us today in this conversation. To learn more about today's guests and to explore the entire podcast archive, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu and find the podcast page under the media tab. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you can leave a review or share on social media, even better. If you have any guest suggestions, visit our website for the submission form or email us livewell at ucla.edu or direct message us on Instagram at healthyucla. Visit the show notes on our website or on whatever platform you're currently listening to and check out organizations, ideas, or people mentioned in this episode. Thanks for being on this journey with us. This episode has been brought to you by the Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA.